Welcome to the CND Podcast. I'm Naima Kalajand and I'm the clinical editor. Following on for our webinar, where we discussed how to overcome racism in the pharmacy, we have received lots of questions from the audience, which we didn't have time to address during the session. So today, I'm going to be going back to our panelists with some of these questions to get their views. First of all, I spoke to Alima Batchelor from the Pharmacists Defence Association. This is what she had to say. During the webinar, you shared some really shocking responses to the PDA survey. We wanted to know if these have been shared with wider members of the profession. Not per se. We're looking at what we want to do with those. They certainly were a minority of the responses that we got, but they were quite concerning, bearing in mind that we are obviously a profession that in a lot of locations deals with people from a wide ethnic background. We're looking at what we can do with this with our members specifically or potentially with a webinar. And we want to do something that is positive and fosters more understanding through the profession. So I think from our point of view, because this was a response from our members, we really think that we want to work with them and hopefully dispel some of the thoughts that underpin the statements that we got and also foster the view that we are a profession and that we need to behave professionally whenever we are at work and we are interacting with, even if we can't change someone's died in the wall feelings about certain matters. Yeah, that's a good point that you make that even though they're very shocking responses, we can use them for good and better, more positive outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we, we have in the last few months started up our BAME network, which is an inclusive network for all of our members who were from a BAME background. We've had a good response. We've got quite a few members now and we've published our first BAME network newsletter and we're hoping again to foster good relationships there and forward the aims of inclusivity and improve the profession in that way. What other kind of support do you offer the pharmacists that have joined this BAME network? We give them administrative support so they have a committee once they hit a certain level of membership we will help them to hold elections to elect chair etc we help them with the housework of producing their newsletter on a regular basis there are also regular meetings so that is on top of the standard membership support that we give recently we had any members that had issues at work with discrimination then we will help them with that. We have a very experienced defence and support team that has pharmacists, employment specialists, lawyers, and so we can help them with any aspect of work like that and support them in that way. Thanks for explaining that. And it's good to hear the work that the PDA are doing to support BAME pharmacists and pharmacy teams. One of the next questions from the audience was, has anybody suffered any racism from users of pharmacist services? I had, I have to say it was a while ago, but I did used to get quite a few, nothing overtly rude, but questioning comments about my capability. And I can remember that I was working in a large store as the pharmacist on duty. And because it was such a large store, there was a receptionist to take prescriptions. And one patient who had actually gone to sit down shouted across the waiting area to the receptionist in a really loud voice, is she fully qualified? and was frosty, shall we say. 
But that was a good few years ago. And I have to say, as sad as it was back in those days, you just sort of took it on the chin. And it was to be expected to a certain degree in those days, not that long before that. I can remember being at university and knowing that there were some nightclubs in the city that operated a colour bar. And that was just well known and just sort of accepted as one of those things. I'm hoping that it isn't as common these days, but we have had at least one communication from one of our members who came to us for our help and they had been physically attacked and that was when they were actually working as a pharmacist. They'd been out for their lunch, they were returning to the pharmacy to go into the pharmacy. It was during the lockdown, so there was a few of people waiting outside. They went to be let in so that they could go back on duty and they were attacked by a man who claimed he thought they were pushing in. But even if he thought they were pushing in, that didn't seem like an appropriate response. And whilst he didn't use any offensive language, as far as I'm aware, the question was whether if a middle-aged white man had been walking to the door to be let in back to work, the response would have been the same. Alima, thank you for sharing that. It's difficult to hear these situations that people have been having been put in and these are just the situations that we know about. There could be lots that haven't been reported. And like you said, you know, would the situation be different if it was a white pharmacist or a white pharmacy team member? So it's difficult. The next question the panel asked was, what about addressing collusion of majority pharmacy staff to racially discriminate against a minority? This is an interesting one. Mohammed made a good point and it's true that Racism doesn't necessarily all go one way. It isn't always white on bane. He said it can be brown on brown, brown on black, and these things are well known. If anybody found themselves in minority and being harassed and bullied, then we find that unacceptable. And as PDA, we would do our utmost to support that individual, whichever direction the racism or bullying was going in, if you see what I mean. The next question was more almost of a comment from one of our viewers, where how can we educate the importance of not making fun of names or unusual things that they can't pronounce? This person has said that they often get things like, I'll never be able to pronounce your name. Is it okay if I just call you this? And these are, you know, really unacceptable. You know, if you could give us any comments that you might have on that. I think one of the key things here is education and also, I suppose, organisational ethos and the culture that you actually promote within your working environment and whether that kind of behaviour is laughed away or whether it is actually treated as unacceptable, even if it means if you need to take the people that behave that way to one side and talk to them and tell them that belittling someone like that isn't professional and isn't acceptable, I think that's what you need. So education and basically zero tolerance within organisations to any sort of behaviour like that. Yeah, I completely agree. How would you advise those at the early stages of their career? For example, pre-registration pharmacists tackling issues in a way that problems are actually addressed? Again, that's a difficult one, I suppose, depending on where you're working, what the response is. I mean, in the first instance, if something was happening perhaps with a work colleague, then I'd say the thing to do would be to go to your pre-registration tutor and talk to or your line manager and talk to them about it. I think, depending on the size of the organisation you're in, and if it looks as if it's a cultural thing, make sure that you have some representation so that you are a member of a union. 
make sure that you've created networks for yourself with other pre-regs, other students, join together if you need to, gather allies, and then address it, I suppose, calmly and appropriately. If you need advice, you know how you can do this, then unions are good places to go and we can advise. We have union advisors as well on how you would approach this, how you might approach your seniors or managers to draw to their attention issues that are concerning you and to hopefully get them to then address them with the workforce. But I think it's get your allies, join a union, and if things are happening, make sure that you keep notes, that you keep those notes contemporaneously, ideally not trying to remember them, and that you have dates and times of what's happened, if anybody else was there. All of this stands you in good stead if you're going to take things further. That was all really great advice. For the next question, should there be a BAME pharmacist group instead of just a black pharmacist group? I think there are lots of groups around. As I understand it, there are Indian pharmacist groups and Pakistani pharmacist groups that may not be countrywide. I think what we decided as the PDA was that we'd have a BAME group so that it was inclusive and anybody from a BAME background could join it, which is not to say that we don't think there should be a black pharmacist group. I think it depends on your experience. And as Mohammed said, there may be some issues around brown on black discrimination that makes some black pharmacists feel that they'd rather be in a black pharmacist group. But I think ideally, looking at what we want to do overall in country, it would be good if we all worked together, even if we had our separate pharmacist group, that they would maybe come together on a quarterly basis or whatever to compare and contrast notes and to look at how we really keep driving this forward and make sure the awareness that's come about through the Black Lives Matters movement and that the sad death of George Floyd isn't wasted and that we keep this moving forward and move to a place where Hopefully we wouldn't need specialist groups because people would be working together and everybody's interests would be dealt with on an equal footing. Definitely it's a case of presenting like a united front against racism and discrimination. You know, if all these groups come together and then hopefully we'd be able to make more progress at a quicker pace. And one final question, Alima. Are institutions, including our regulator and employers, doing enough to discourage racism? Not altogether, I'd have to say. We'd like to see, for instance, a number of things. We think that the GPHC could possibly do more to bolster and beef up the regulation of pharmacy courses because we see a huge variation in the results that students coming out of the various different pharmacy schools end up with. And when you look at the pass rates for the pre-registration registration exam, you then find that there's a huge difference and there are some institutions who rarely get much more than 50% pass rate for their graduates and other pharmacy schools whose graduates get somewhere in the 90s on a regular basis. That just doesn't seem good enough. We'd like to see the GPHC looking at those courses and seeing, well, what is the difference? Is there a difference in those undergraduate courses that's causing this discrepancy? And what can be done to address it? 
when you look at the experiential learning, and that's going to be more and more important as we move to the new versions of initial education and training for pharmacists, they're going to need to have far more clinical work experience to help them boost their courses. And what we found looking at the undergraduate courses was currently there's a difference of about tenfold between the schools that have the lowest amount of experiential on-the-job clinical training and those that have the most. And again, this really needs to be addressed because we need to make sure that wherever our students study for their undergraduate course, they're getting a similar standard of education. Then there's the issue about Oriel and how pharmacists get their placements or pre-regs get their placements. And again, there seems to be an issue with a preponderance of BAME and overseas students ending up in community pharmacy and a lot of white students ending up in hospital pharmacy. And when you look at student tastes or what they would like to do and their priorities and their top choices, the vast majority of students would like to do their pre-reg in hospital. And then you see the imbalance of the ethnic makeup of those students that actually make it into hospital pharmacy. It does make you wonder whether something needs to be addressed there and whether there's any way to try and cut out any unconscious bias that might be happening at that level. One thing that we have seen does seem a positive move is that the GPHC is looking to make sure that when they have their fitness to practice panels and when they're first looking at the information on referrals, that will be anonymized so that no unconscious bias could fit into or might impact and influence how that case is progressed within the organization. So yes, we think there's quite a lot that the GPHC could do. And again, in a way, we think there are things that RPS could do within their English board and look it does have BAME members but again they're all from certain groups and so you know it would be nice to see a range of black and ethnic minority people on the English pharmacy board if possible and yes I know that's partially to do with who stands for election and who gets elected but also there's something around the will within the English pharmacy board to actually look at BAME issues and they're starting to do stuff now but I think it's taken a while to get to that stage where they're actually looking at producing statements and looking at what they're going to do within the organisation to progress matters. Is there anything else that you'd be keen to talk about? It's just to encourage people to join a union. If you are choosing PDA and you are black or minority ethnic heritage background, then please do think about joining our BAME network and bolstering that because the more members it has, the more input it gets from all the different groups and the better lobbying voice it can have and the more it can inform the PDA as we lobby Parliament and the other groups where we lobby and try and progress their interests. That was Alima Batchelor from the Pharmacist Defence Association, answering the questions that we didn't have time to address during the webinar. Next, I'm going to be going to Mohammed Hussein, who's a senior clinical lead for NHS Digital, although all of the opinions he's given today are his own. Here's what he had to say. Thanks for following up on these questions with me today, Mohammed. 
at the end of the webinar there was a question about unconscious bias and I was wondering if you could just go back over that one again as I know you had a few things you wanted to say. Unconscious bias is real. I don't think we should dismiss it. I think we should recognise that it is real and we should recognise that most bias is probably mediated through unconscious means. But when you aggregate all of those individual unconscious biases together, they become structural. And I think that's the bit that I wanted to address. And also to say that dealing with bias and racism doesn't end with unconscious bias training, which is what I think some organisations think it is. So they'll do an online training around unconscious bias. And we know online training is weak training anyway. It's not as engaging. It's not as interactive. And the organisations then simply tick a box to say they've done unconscious bias training. It doesn't make any lead to any meaningful change. In fact, there's some evidence to suggest that if you do unconscious bias training poorly, it's as likely to reinforce a bias as it is to address a bias. And if you really want to address unconscious bias, it has to be meaningful training. And the best training is often group training with a informed speaker who can really bring out, tease out the different facets of unconscious bias and what it means and how to address it. In a nutshell, my point would be that it starts with unconscious bias training. It doesn't end with unconscious bias training, where most organisations think it does. So I think that's my concern around unconscious bias. On that point, Mohammed, I just wanted to ask if you think this training should be mandatory and should be given every year when you're in an organisation, or is this something that should just be done as you join an organisation or company? I think it varies. There's no clear rules on this. So I work for different organisations. In one of my organisations, the unconscious bias training, the EDI training, is a mandatory task every year. Now, I do think it should be mandatory, but I also feel that if you make fairly poor or average training mandatory, people simply click through it. It becomes a task. They don't really engage with it. It doesn't help change their thoughts or drive reflection. And I think that's the danger of just making it a click through a bit of training. So it really needs to be much more meaningful and much more engaging. And it needs to lead on to action. Because if you think about most unconscious bias training, it's done by yourself with a machine and with some kind of assessment at the end of it. And people just learn to click through it. They don't actually engage with that process. They don't actually engage with the learning. And so to make it meaningful, there has to be something that comes out at the end of it. There has to be sharing of lived experiences. There has to be some concrete actions that come out of this, looking at structural bias and how to make our systems more equitable and fairer for everybody. And without that, I think we're just giving ourselves a false sense of security that we're addressing the issue when we're really not. Thanks, Mohammed. So next question from the audience was that in practice, whenever you submit a grievance, you look like a troublemaker. How can we overcome this or navigate this type of stereotype? You know, it's a really difficult one. I think I addressed this in part on the webinar itself. And you wouldn't be surprised to know that I would come on the side that you need to raise it in some way. Recognising that a form of grievance might not always be the best way for yourself or for others, but you need to document it in some way. I've done various things in my professional life. Earlier in my professional life, I didn't document them or lodge any kind of formal report about the incidents that I experienced. And that's because of power and you feel vulnerable when you're a junior member of staff and you can be a sole voice and you're just in a really vulnerable position so it's difficult to deal with it. What I would say now, kind of having gone through it a number of times in different organisations is that 
try and find a network. So if there is a BAME network, for example, an EDI network, engage with that individual or that or that network and try and get peer support if you can. If that's not possible, then try and document it for yourself. So write out kind of what happened, how it made you feel, how it affected your impact and your ability to work, how it affected your personal and private life, and document any evidence you have. So who was there, what time did it happen, and perhaps even describe the situation. Because if at a later date you get to a point where you do raise it and you have incidents and you link them all together into one grievance, it's really hard to perhaps remember everything that happened in the right chronology and who was there and what was said and how it made you feel. And if you do end up in some kind of formal grievance or even a tribunal, then you can be questioned quite significantly about those events, exactly who was there, exactly what was said, in which order, and even to describe the setting that you were in. And if you're not able to do that, then people will challenge the veracity of your events, of your story. It's really important that you have that. And quite often, I think we need to remember that recalling such events is a trauma in itself, and many people might deal with it by trying to forget it. And then trying to recall it many years later leaves you with, with, with perhaps a foggy picture of exactly what happened other than how it made you feel. And that's not often, it's not enough to be able to really give a strong account of exactly what happened. So I would say network, try and tell others. If you're no one to tell, document it for yourself. You never know when you might need it or when it might become important. Email it to yourself so you've got a, a date stamped account of that event. Try and tell trusted others. So at least you can have corroborators account from witnesses that are closer to the time of whom you told of how it felt and what happened. You can always raise it informally with HR or with your manager or your manager's manager even and document it in that way. You always have the option of a formal grievance, although I know that is difficult and it is often is the most difficult on the individual who's the victim and systems shouldn't be like that, but they are. And finally, if you do leave an organization or leave a team, again, I would say document it and make sure you cover it off in your exit interview or write a letter subsequently. I've done all of those things. I've Even within an organization that I have been in for many years, when I moved teams, I took that opportunity to write to my then manager to highlight a number of instances of which he was already aware where I had experienced racial bias, racial stereotyping, and just kind of hyper-criticism of my work compared to others. And we discussed this previously verbally, but never in writing. And when I left, I took the opportunity just to clarify for the record exactly what had happened, how it made me feel, and that he was aware all the way through for many years what I had experienced. But I'd taken no actual action to resolve it. And I put it in a letter to him. I got a two-word response, which was noted, Mohammed, and that was it. But I kept that. And for me, it, it, it's important because it was documented. Um, so it's difficult, but I think we have to try and address it in, in, in those different channels. Thanks for sharing your experiences with us there, Mohammed. And it's difficult to hear that you've been through these kind of things. And I'm sure lots of people have been through similar things and they've not necessarily maybe realised it's, it's something that they should be reporting. I'm sure they have. And, and, and I'm sure, you know, people come from different protected characteristics, different groups. So being people experience it quite a lot. As a woman, I'm sure you will have experienced it in many different ways. Men women in particular have a double impact, if you like, from both aspects. Was there anything else you wanted to comment on from the webinar, Mohammed? I guess if there's anything, it, it, it was this thing about pace. We've had lots of organisations coming out talking about equality. And I actually got an invitation from Keith Ridge to join 
his inclusion roundtable last week, and I made this comment then at his roundtable as well, which was that there's a lot of talk at the moment. We seem to be a little bit light on actions, and we seem to be a little bit light on injecting pace into it. So what's going to happen next? If I give you an example, at the RPS, English Pharmacy Board meeting, back in 26th of June, there was an issue raised and an action taken around when are we going to get membership data on membership breakdown by ethnicity and other protected characteristics? And the response from the executive was, there's a GDPR issue, which was quickly corrected to say that we don't think there is any GDPR issue. And there's an action taken that the RPS were going to look into how they could collect this data and how they could present it. We're now in mid-August and there's no update on when that's going to be provided or what progress has been made. And I asked for this an update on Twitter and I got a response, which was, we will report in three months' time to the board. And I think if we have to report for three months for each update, then we're not going to get very far. And that for me is my concern is that we're not getting the injection of pace and real commitment to this. And it feels to me this is a moment rather than a movement for change. And it needs to be a movement for change. That was Mohammed Hussein, Senior Clinical Lead for NHS Digital, answering questions from the audience from our webinar on how to overcome racism in the pharmacy. If you'd like to hear the webinar in full, you can re-listen to this again on our website. We hope this is just the start of this very important conversation and we look forward to providing more coverage on this topic. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to CND Podcasts on iTunes or your preferred Android app. Thank you for listening. <laughs>